Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I kind of don't know how to come in, actually. Uh, well, I, I actually have this one. Okay, do it. Speaking of genocide, we have brought in an expert to, to talk about a really, really disturbing subject that did not deserve the laugh that I just gave it. We couldn't figure out how to get into this story, so here we go. Uh, Chris, could you explain who you are and what the f- is going on? Well, wait, well, first uh, of all, first of all, you're listening to angry. <laughs> you're listening to Angry Planet. I'm Matthew Galt, who does uh, things at Vice. Uh, for now, Jason Fields is with me, the opinion editor at Newsweek, and we are joined by Christopher Atwood. Mr. Atwood, could you please tell us, tell the lovely people uh, who you are and what you do? Uh, sure. So uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Christopher. I am a specialist on Eastern Europe. Uh, particularly, my focus is kind of on or it's kind of evolved over the past year or so um, into looking into uh, the history of colonial violence uh, in Eastern Europe, um, particularly Russian colonial violence, um, and how that is manifesting itself in uh, the current uh, invasion of Ukraine. Um, And so last year uh, in May, uh, a team of about, uh, it was like a small team put together a report. I was part of that team on Russia's violations of the genocide um, you know, just a couple of months into the war. Um, and we got a bunch of, we had like 50 plus international scholars, uh, international lawyers, genocide experts, Eastern European experts um, to sign on and basically say Russia's in violation of the genocide convention. Um, and there's a serious risk of genocide happening in Ukraine. Um, and this year, uh, just last month, um, in July, we published an updated version of that report, uh, which concludes that Russia is committing genocide in Ukraine um, and that, uh, you know, if basically there's a legal obligation to do everything um, in any given state's power to prevent genocide. Can um, you explain what genocide is? I think that people don't really know the d- definition. It's very, very precise. And the yeah. and this report is within that legal inter- definition within the international community, right? right. Yes, yes. So um, the report, um, the updated version of the report, is basically the core uh, group of people who worked on last year's report. Um, which last year the 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 principal author was a guy named Yona Diamond, who's an international human rights lawyer, um, and then uh, two. Uh, principal advisors were Professor John Packer, who is the head of uh, the University of Ottawa's international like uh, law department, and then uh, Aaron Rosenberg, who is a visiting scholar um, at the University of Cincinnati's College of Law, and who's also an international lawyer. Right, so the, these are like very serious international lawyers who kind of spearheaded the thing. Uh, my role in both reports was as a regional specialist to make sure that we get all of the appropriate nuance. Um, and then this year, we brought in um, the principal author. This year is a professor, um, Christina Hook, who is a, an assistant professor of conflict management at uh, Kennesaw State University. Her background is um, in genocide studies and in anthropology. So um, the updated report kind of takes, it takes a wider breath to try to explain how this is genocide, why this is genocide. Um, and yes, yeah, so we are, we are in this report, we are operating um, within the, like, you know, that concrete international understanding of what genocide is. Um, and right, like it's, it's the, it's a very concrete defined thing by the by the genocide uh convention um although 
Um, it should be noted that you don't have to have signed the Genocide Convention for the Genocide Convention to be applicable. At this point, so many countries have have uh, signed the convention, and we our understanding of genocide globally is such that everybody, like regardless of whether your country signs on or whatever you do, like you're you're this uh, this definition is is um, absolute. Uh, but basically, genocide is. Uh, committing one of several acts uh, to with with the main goal being to uh, intentionally destroy in whole or in part um, a national, ethnic, racial or religious group. Um, the in part thing is also really, really, really important. Um, you do not have to uh, one, you don't have to destroy the entire group. And two, you don't have to intend to destroy the entire group. You just need to destroy a significant enough part of the group um, in order for uh, the group's continued existence to kind of come into question. Um, now, I, I should say that, like the the end part part of the definition um, is something that is debated by international lawyers, and I am not an international lawyer, so definitely take like my interpretation with a slight grain of salt. Um, but that is kind of the 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 way that we operated when we were working on the report. Um, is that in part just means an, a, a significant uh, part of the group, um, and so then um, it's also important to define uh, the five crimes of genocide um, because the structure of the new report that we put out basically outlines how Russia is attempting. Basically, Russia is using this definition of genocide um, as like a, a guidebook on what to do in Ukraine. Um, so the five crimes are killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, uh, deliberately inflicting conditions of life um, that will bring about the physical destruction of the group, um, imposing measures to prevent births within the group, and then forcefully transferring children uh, from one group to the other group. Um, and the last one is, in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of people, uh, probably like the strongest uh, case that genocide as such is being committed in, in, in Ukraine. You make it sound as if literally Russian leadership looked at this definition and said, like, oh, this is what we need to do. You know, to me, that's that's it. it, it when you look at the totality of what Russia is doing in Ukraine, it, it becomes very hard um, to, like, interpret this another way. Um, it just it, it just the way that Russia operates the way like because uh, working on this report. Right. Um, we did this report entirely with open source uh materials so we didn't like we didn't take any interviews that um were not published anywhere else we didn't we didn't we don't have any like secret information from uh or private information from like the ukrainian government or for, from any other organization we have we've drawn on public reports which means that um, I, I am I am somebody who has read a lot of U.N. reports um, and a lot of uh, different humanitarian organization reports on how Russia operates when they occupy an area. And when you read some of these reports, the way that uh, Russia handles the occupation um, is it's it's absolutely brutal. And it really it really does feel like they're they're kind of. Um, they, they get set up and in the first several days of the, uh, of the occupation, they start to figure out who they're going to target for destruction in that locality, um, and how they're going to target them. Like it, it really, it really comes off, uh, like that. Um, the, the biggest, to me, the biggest red flag is the way that, um, everybody remembers or people who followed very closely, um, the lead up to the full scale invasion remembers the U.S. made a big deal about how, um, Russia was keeping lists of Ukrainians of who to target for destruction before the full scale invasion started. Um, those lists by all accounts are very real. Uh, the, um, I think the AP did a really great report on, um, who's on those lists, but um, what is less known is that uh, there are multiple lists. Russia keeps multiple lists of people. And um, one of their lists uh, isn't compiled until they've actually occupied a town. So whenever they occupy a town, they do sweeps of residential areas. They knock on doors. They find out who lives where, who who does what, who is responsible for what, you know, sec sectors of like, you know, intellectual society who are the thought leaders in the town um and those people end up on lists they weren't on lists before the before the army occupied that area they start compiling these lists and um as we kind of point out in our in our report uh like this 
Um, all of this goes back to uh, the way that Russia talks about Ukrainians um, and the way that Russia portrays Ukrainians um, as effectively deserving uh, of 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 destruction or of death. Um, Russian propaganda compares Ukrainians um, who are nationally conscious, who view themselves only as Ukrainians, who want to speak Ukrainian, who only want to uh, partake in Ukrainian culture, um, those Ukrainians who reject Russian identity, who reject uh, Russian language, who reject um, you know their participation in Russian culture, um, those Ukrainians are portrayed as Nazis. Um, so when you have this operation where you're occupying a town, you're doing sweeps of, of uh, different areas, and you're compiling lists of who the Ukrainians who the nationally conscious Ukrainians in that area are, and those are the ones that are slated for destruction or for in, um, imprisonment or for you know conditions that will make their life uh, absolutely impossible. Um, then it's it's really hard to interpret um, those acts um, as anything other than like a deliberate um, use of what is forbidden in the Genocide Convention um, uh, as a weapon of war, basically. Well, that's real World War II stuff. Um, you know, taking the intellectuals or leaders of the town, making lists. Uh, do you know, I mean, you said making lives miserable. I mean, are they actually executing people? Um, so, so they're, 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 oh, go ahead. No, I just wanted to, you know, yeah. make sure. No, yeah, they, they, um, so, Yes, uh, the the ex, like the targeting of Ukrainians um, uh, is like the, there are different things that Russia can do with um, a with a person who's been targeted, um, and that person also doesn't have to be on a list, right? Like Ukrainians report that uh, having Ukrainian national symbols um, as uh, as um, like as tattoos can make you identifiable as somebody either for de deportation or for destruction. Um, there were reports uh, that during the occupation of the uh, Kiev Oblast, you know, Bucha, Irpin, um, Brodyanka, all those places, uh, that people were specifically targeted for having nationalist um, symbols uh, uh, tattooed onto them. And a nationalist symbol can be something as, you know, as, 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 uh innocuous as the ukrainian coat of arms or a ukrainian word tattooed or uh one one really common tattoo in ukraine right now um is getting the letter Y, which is like an i with two dots on it which is a letter that does not exist in the russian alphabet doesn't exist in the english alphabet but exists in the ukrainian alphabet and so it's like a symbol of like you know ukrainian ukraineness and ukrainian uh like the uniqueness of ukrainian identity and language and culture um and so yeah yeah this can this can manifest um in 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 you know being targeted for destruction uh the the biggest example um or, or one of the bigger examples of this was uh during the occupation of Kherson there was a really famous story of a um of an orchestra conductor who uh the russian government wanted to have a celebration concert uh to celebrate uh the annexation of Kherson and uh they went to this guy's house said you're going to conduct the concert he said um i'm a proud ukrainian and i will not conduct your concert i mean i don't know that he said he was a proud ukrainian but he refused to conduct the concert um and then uh the uh military police came back um and shot him uh, i believe either the same day or the next day um so you know like this is something where you know if they've determined that you are too nationalistic um in their interpretation of what it means to be ukrainian nationalist um then yeah you can be targeted for 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 you know uh being sum summarily executed this is so soviet that's i just wanted to say that matthew i didn't mean to interrupt no, that's a good segue into kind of what I wanted to ask questions about. Actually, um, so you're a you're a subject matter expert and historian of colonial colonialism in Eastern Europe, um, and I think that a lot of times when people hear the word colonialism, they think you know Belgium, Belgium in the Congo, they think mm -hmm. France and North Africa. They do not necessarily think of Eastern Europe. Like that's part of the territories that's out and doing the colonizing, is it not? <laughs> they might say. Yeah. Uh, can you kind of give us the the actual history there of uh, – I know that we've talked about this on the show before, but I think it's interesting and it's an important like rubric to look through all of this stuff. Like 
being caught between Germany and Russia is not a great place to be, right? Yeah. So um, I think that's I think that's a really good 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 thing to um, kind of wade into occasionally uh, because yes, you're right. Most people perceive colonialism as uh, you know, overseas expansion, uh, you go, you arrive in some foreign place with uh, advanced weaponry, and you basically use your advanced uh, uh, military power to subjugate the people. And then you use that power to show them that you were dominant over them, dominate them for some time. And then at some point, you no longer need that military might in order to maintain your dominance because you've colonized the people and they recognize that you are superior to them. Um, and so the, the first thing that people have a hard time wrapping their heads around um, is that uh, Ukraine is not overseas from Russia. Um, it is on Russia's border. Um, and similarly, right, like uh, the way that Russia has acted towards Poland historically, um, Poles certainly feel like they're a post-colonial society. Um, the Baltics also, uh, a lot of people in Central Asia are starting to have that conversation. Um, the way that uh, the 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 i think what what's the one of the best ways to kind of uh answer this question um is actually by kind of outlining how russian colonialism in particular um is different from uh western colonialism and i i say russian colonialism because you know other eastern european uh nations and and political projects have you know, potentially engaged in some form of colonialism, depending on how uh, how broad we want to define that. Um, and so I'm not saying that Russia is like necessarily completely unique, right? Like um, some some some, uh, you know, some Ukrainians would say that uh, certain Ukraine, certain Polonization uh, policies were a form of colonialism historically in Ukraine. Um, but right now, if the, the main topic of the day is Russian colonialism, and so the way that Russian colonialism uh, chiefly is differentiated from from Western colonialism um, is number one, th there is no overseas aspect of it. It is um, largely just territorial expansion. Um, but then another huge one is that um, Russian colonialism, uh, because the Russians tried to colonize a lot of peoples, especially in Eastern Europe, who already had long European histories, um, this, this tactic of um, coming in with uh, better weapons and dominating the society until the point where they recognize that you were superior to them. Um, that doesn't work in Poland and it doesn't work in Ukraine because Poles look at that, like they look at Russian history and Russian culture and they look at their own history and their own culture. And they're like, we're not like significantly different. And we like our literature better than we like your literature. We like our culture better than we like your culture. And no amount of guns or weapons are going to make you uh, uh, convince us of that. Um, and this, this then creates a situation where, um, Russia doesn't have an alternative to violence. Um, whereas, whereas, um, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, South American, uh, African, um, uh, Asian countries have, uh, you know, issues with, uh, navigating a post-colonial existence where it's like, guys, like, um, you know, so the way that some post-colonial authors write um, is as if, like, you know, we should theoretically be free now. We need to uh, chart our own course in some way. Um, that doesn't necessarily um, apply in the same way that it does um, in in these in in, in these uh, uh, places in these countries. Um, and but what also happens is that because um, because some of the colonialism, particularly in Eastern Europe, is white people colonizing other white people, um, it creates a different problem that's not the same, which is, for example, in Ukraine, you had a lot of Ukrainians who realized, oh, I can just speak Russian, claim Russian identity, uh, say that I'm not actually Ukrainian, um, and they'll leave me alone. Um, but you are Ukrainian, you go home and you feel like Ukrainian, but you live your entire life basically internalizing all of these colonial narratives about yourself, and you have to regurgitate them to the urban elites that you're trying to appeal to in order to make sure that you are not bothered. Um, and so this creates a lot of um, issues in Ukrainian societies that are in Ukrainian society that uh, Ukrainian public intellectuals uh, are, are very much debating um, right now. They, they were debating that for the entirety of Ukrainian independence, but that has become a really, really, really big topic in Ukraine right now. 
um, the topic of how do we navigate uh, our like the, the Russian aspects of who we are? How, how do we separate ourselves from from Russia culturally, linguistically? Do we like why do so many Ukrainian political actors speak Russian at home? Um, and do they need to, um, should they be, should, should they, should they stop? Is that just part of who they are? And so there's nothing we can do about it. How do we navigate these kinds of waters? And so it creates certain unique problems. Um, but they are definitely distinct from that kind of Western colonialism that you were talking about. And of course, Stalin was huge on moving populations from one place to another. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the Baltic nations, um, they some of them still have very large Russian populations, and that's on purpose. Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. This was, I mean, part, yeah, part of part of part of this. I mean, this this these these Stalinist ta- tactics, um, you know, are you know, ironically borrowed from the Russian Empire. the the way the, the way that the Russian Empire um, tried to uh, tried to um, protect itself from uh you know the the, the dying kind of uh heaves of the russian empire try to protect itself from uh you know national awakenings around itself um definitely yeah the soviet union had a very obvious strategy that you know putin is is himself trying to recreate in mariupol right now um it's something that they've they've been trying to do in crimea um but yeah, like this, this idea of bringing in a bunch of ethnic Russians, um, who then will always feel loyal to, uh, Russia. Um, like, you know, I, I lived in Donetsk in 2011 and I remember so many people saying, you know, I, I'm Ukrainian. I feel Ukrainian, but, you know, my grandfather, my great grandfather is originally from Russia. And so I have something in me that is Russian and I can't let that go. And that's that's an intentional tactic. Um, and the other thing is that um, oftentimes when we talk about particularly we talk about Ukraine, um, we, you know, can also uh, overlook what happened to Crimean Tatars and the way that, um, you know, if you look at the population dynamics of Crimea um, from the 1800s to current day, um, you know, there was there was a concerted effort to uh, change the ethnic makeup of Crimea to Russify it. Um, and then during World War II, uh, Stalin deported uh, the Crimean Tatars, which which the Crimean Tatars, uh, you know, view as their as as as. Uh, a genocide that they also overcame, right? So on the territory of Ukraine, in that you know, in that uh, uh, period between the two wars, uh, so many peoples uh, felt targeted by two different uh, powers that were trying to colonize them, um, and so it is. Yeah, it's it's a it's 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 a discussion that finally is happening um, in a lot of places, and I can only hope that it keeps kind of getting bigger and bigger and bigger um, and more uh, more heard, um, and that that we we have more of these um, very serious conversations about you know, re-examining why we view Russia the way that we do, uh, because I feel like the answer to it is probably a lot of uh, Russophilia around um, a lot of, uh, you know, academic and intellectual institutions in in the West. This also is a nice segue to uh, one of the parts of the report that I found really fascinating is how naked a lot of the rhetoric is from Russian leadership and in Russian media. Can you explain the phrase, we can do it again? Yeah, so that phrase is 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 um so that phrase goes back apparently to the 1940s um and it basically means like, you know, we can uh we can show our power, we can dominate again. Um and it it it, it apparently references um uh, the domination uh, or like the, the victory over Germany, like we can, we can make this happen again. Um, and it has, it, I, I'm really happy that we went, that we use that as kind of the anchor of, um, how we explored the historical, um, uh, context of the current day invasion because, um, it also kind of illustrates the way that, World War II historical memory has become weaponized uh, because now it's less about we overcame a particular evil um, and it's more about which 
And I should say that We Overcame a Particular Evil was a far more ingrained memory in the West than it ever was in Russia. Um, in Russia, a lot of the his- historical memory around World War II has been um, the great Russian people overcame like a great invasion. Um, but this has been, this has become bastardized so much to the point that, um, you know, World War, the victory in World War II now just means anyone who Fs with Russia um, will suffer the wrath of Russia. Um, and so this means that, um, um, actually, this reminds me of, 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 of a story um, from I lived in Moscow um, and I uh, when the first invasion in 2014 happened, I was in Moscow um, and I was curious what was happening in opposition politics. So I was actually at a um, I was at a petition drive where a um, a candidate for local uh, for like the local city council of Moscow uh, was trying to get signatures on a petition in order to get his uh, uh, name on the ballot. Um, And they were just walking up to people who lived in that district who were like, hey, um, you know, we know that you might not vote for him, but we think that, you know, the people of Moscow deserve a choice on who they should elect to their city council. Um, And uh, they you know, they gave they gave this guy's pitch. His pitch was that United Russia is corrupt, that um, he was like a he was like a um, uh, 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 an infrastructure expert, particularly on, on traffic, how to how to relieve traffic problems in Moscow. Um, and so he was like, they're corrupt. And so the traffic problems that's due to United Russia corruption. And this old woman, I remember distinctly, looks at the the person trying to get her signature and says, I wouldn't criticize United Russia because Putin is doing so much to to prevent Ukrainian Nazis from coming to Moscow. And they say, uh, well, we understand that. But will you at least consider signing your name um, so that his name is on the ballot, even if you're going to vote for vote against him. And the woman says, okay, I'll sign my name because I believe in democracy and I believe that um, that we should have a choice. Um, what is the guy's name? And the person says, Maxim Katz. And she goes, oh, I'm not signing anything for a Jew. And that to me is like the perfect encapsulation of the tension with Russian historical memory. Um, the defeat of the Nazis was not overcoming a unique evil that uh, targeted Jews in particular for destruction along with other other groups. Um, the problem with the Nazis was that the Nazis uh, tried to invade Russia or tried to invade what Russia views as its own historical territory. And that is ultimately the problem. And so coming back to this this phrase, we can do it again, right? The, the phrase basically means like it, it's used as a jingoistic uh, rhetorical device to remind Russians um, or for Russians to remind themselves and to try to remind the rest of the world that we can we can destroy you again. We can we can overcome anything that you throw at us. Um, and it reminds me of, you know, when, when you're in Russia around May 9th, there's always uh, people have like stickers on their cars that say like uh, uh, on to Berlin. Right. Like as a, as like a, as like it started off as a tongue in cheek thing. And now it's not so tongue in cheek anymore. It's like we're going to eventually like uh, dominate Europe again. Um, and so, yeah, this this kind of um, this phrase, I think, really underscores uh, the kind of bastardization of that historical memory and how it's being weaponized um, to justify uh, genocide in Ukraine. And can you tell me about the 60 Minutes interview? Um, it's Russian 60 Minutes, to be clear. That is that is talked about uh, kind of alongside we can do it again and the way the military leaders talk about Ukraine and how that uh, strengthens the case that genocide is occurring. Yeah, so um, I would I would I would. So my argument would be that um, in terms of how strong the case of Russia violating uh, the genocide convention is, um, I would say that uh that number one, Russia is absolutely in violation of the Genocide Convention. I mean, I'm convinced that they're in violation on uh, several articles. But if I had to pick one that I could prove 100% beyond the, a reasonable doubt that anyone could ever possibly have, and I know for sure that there is like it's an absolute slam dunk, I have all of the evidence that I need in, in the open, um, that would be incitement to genocide. Um, so uh, the Genocide Convention does not only prohibit the act of genocide. Um, it also prohibits um, uh, several other acts, one of which is uh, incitement to genocide. Um, and so our report last year, what we found 
Um, we did not officially find that Russia was committing genocide in Ukraine. Um, many of the authors, including myself, thought that Russia was committing genocide in Ukraine. But in terms of making a legal argument, um, we felt most comfortable saying that Russia was in violation of incitement to genocide and that there was a serious risk of genocide because functionally speaking, there is no uh, legal difference in terms of what to do next, because uh, the next step is that countries have a duty to prevent genocide. Um, so going back to the question, um, this is kind of the the, the easiest, um, most obvious uh, case to make. Um, it, it's it's and it's not even like the 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 quotes that we included in the report um, are just ones that we particularly found as powerful. Um, they are not all encompassing. They are not all inclusive. Um, I forget the website. Um, it's almost as if but- you have too much material to work with. Yeah, there, there, it's, it's so much. It was part of, part of the problem. So this updated report, um, to give you a little bit of an insight, um, is, uh, like 55, 50 to 60 pages, somewhere in there. Um, it was supposed to be short. It was supposed to be just a very short summary of how things, how dynamics have shifted. And it became a challenge of like, you know, citing specific examples to be like, yes, these things are really happening. Um, but then not citing every single example that you come across, which means now you have to like weigh what it, the significance of citing one thing over the other. Um, but there is, uh, uh, sorry. Um, there is one like absolutely amazing resource that I will direct everybody to uh, take a look at, uh, which is just security has a uh, has an an updating um, list uh, that they they've titled. If you just Google Russia's eliminationist rhetoric against Ukraine, a collection um, by uh, Clara Apt. Um, it is an absolutely brilliant just it's it's a living breathing document that is updated regularly with different eliminationist rhetoric uh, about Ukrainians um there are other quotes that that um are just fascinating so what we try to capture in the report is that um the russian narratives continually shift so when the full scale invasion started um it it the 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 push from the propaganda machine was that Ukrainians are all Nazis, um, or at least not all Ukrainians are all Nazis. We're just going to go into Ukraine, special military operation. We're going to cut out the Nazis. Um, some In one of the quotes, somebody says that it's like cutting out a tumor um, and you just you have to go in like w- with precision. Um, but then uh, it kind of starts shifting and you start around, um, I want to say, uh, late March into April, um, around the time we find out about Bucha, um, you start to hear a lot of uh, concern from Russian propagandists that actually, oh my God, there are so many Ukrainians that are Nazis. Um, uh, and then it becomes this problem where actually Russia uh, has lost an entire generation of young Ukrainians who are all uh, who are all deep down Nazis and we have to do something about it, which is particularly concerning when you combine that with the forced deportations of Ukrainian children. Uh, you combine that with the camps that they're sent to, uh, with the crimes committed against children in those camps. Um, uh, but then you see this shift to, uh, not just like, um, not just, uh, uh, like, it's it's not just they're Nazis or they have this Nazi ideology. It's that they're demonic. Like they are literally possessed by Satan in this. And you start to have these like religious undertones of like, you have to, you have to prove to us that you're not demonic or we're going to destroy you. I have, so, yeah, uh, like, I've got both quotes pulled up here. I'll read yeah. them. Um, so the 60 minutes interview, uh, this is with a Duma deputy. Yeah. Um, Uh, Quote, a maximum of five, and this is 2022, a maximum of 5% are incurable. Simply put, 2 million people, these 2 million people should have left Ukraine or must be denazified, which means to be destroyed. Um, And then the next bit uh, is from a a military figure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quote, Russian people possessed by the devil 
But if you, but if Ukrainians don't want us to change your minds, then we will kill you. We will kill as many of you as we have to. We will kill one million or five million. We can exterminate all of you until you understand that you are possessed and have to be cured. Yeah, and those 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 run in parallel with. There's another quote from Margarita Simonyan, who is the director of uh, like RT. She's like a really she's a very very prominent figure in the Russian nationalist space. Um, and she, uh, at one point in, uh, like a couple months into the war made a comment about, um, there are so there, I thought it wasn't that many, but there are so many who have just been possessed by this Nazi frenzy. Um, and of course, yes, yeah, like they're, they're very open about this. And that, that second quote that you read, that was from, um, actually uh one of the he was literally the first collaborator he was um a guy who declared himself like the people's uh the people's mayor of donetsk or the people's governor of donetsk i forget which one um pavel gubarov and he is um he he, his background is like yeah he's like he's he's a russian nationalist who who was involved in like a russian uh far-right uh organization um you know when he was younger and yeah like uh, th- this idea that Ukrainians are Russians who have been uh, convinced by the West to reject their own Russianness um, and that in order to uh, solve the problems of in order to save Ukraine and to save Ukrainians in their minds, they have to destroy all of the Ukrainians who um, who are not uh, 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 who 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 think of themselves this way and refuse to change. And actually, I also want to point that um, these quotes also um, help support the argument by a very prominent international lawyer named Wayne Jordash, uh, who is working with the Reckoning Project um, in Ukraine right now. Um, and he's also working on the topic of genocide. And what he says, uh, he, he spoke at um, a uh, he spoke at a, a book festival um in June, and one of the one of his points that he made was um, so by 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 Putin's own admission, um, or by Russia's own admission, by the way that we understand Russia um, and their goals for the invasion, they thought that they were going to come into Ukraine, and that the vast majority of Ukrainian society was going to welcome them with open arms, um, and that they only had to resolve like problems with a little bit of of of, of, of Ukrainian society. You know that like you know eighty percent would welcome russia with open arms that's what they were expecting when they they first rolled in that's why they had such a problem um you know getting to kiev is they didn't think that they would have a serious fight on the way there um the problem then becomes um okay so then what was their plan with the other 20 percent like what was the plan with the people who weren't going to welcome them um what was what 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 did we what did they expect to do and what they have shown us um in the subsequent occupation of of regions um, they've shown us what they were planning to do with that other 20% that they, 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 the problem that Russia faces is they didn't realize that Ukrainians actually believe that they're Ukrainian. They didn't realize that the percentage of people who are willing to reject their own Ukrainian identity is significantly smaller than what they thought, even in Russian speaking parts of Ukraine. And that has become a very, very, very big challenge that, um, you know, manifest itself in the way that Russia uh, operates in occupied areas. All right, Angry Planet listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
All right, Angry Planet listeners, welcome back. We are on with Christopher Atwood. Can you, I, I know that we've talked about it before, but I just want to make it explicitly mm-hmm. clear. Uh, can you then talk about the way that Russia operates in those occupied areas? Um, yeah, sure. So um, one of the most disturbing parts um, of, I mean, the, the whole report obviously is, is very disturbing. And um, the way that uh, children are targeted is incredibly disturbing. But but one of the hardest things to read um, and to kind of work on was um, the, uh, it's so it's Russia's violations of Article 2D of the Genocide Convention, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. Um, and so when Russia occupies an area, um, they make sweeps of the uh, of, of different er- of different like residential areas, and they will like. So this this goes deeper than just making lists. Um, they will specifically they will find women and they will um, target those women for sexual assault. Um, and there have actually been instances where women have. Um, testified that uh so for example i i I pulled one of the quotes up um uh there was a woman who was beaten for 10 days during the occupation of izum and um when she was initially detained russian soldiers told her we'll beat the ukrainian out of you um they uh, uh um another woman uh was held in a basement for 25 days and was told that they were going to rape her until she didn't want any sexual contact with men, with any men so that she wouldn't have Ukrainian children. Um, so basically, when the Russian occupation authorities take over your town, um, you are at their entire mercy. Um, I've heard so like just just. So obviously, while compiling this report, we have to read through a bunch of stuff and then identify what specifically um like points to uh, uh, violations of the genocide convention. Um, But, you know, you end up coming across a lot of things and like, you know, some of the things are just like, they will, um, they will come, they will see a young man um, and then they will go and talk to other people and then um, say that somebody says something that like makes the Russian authorities think that that young man um, that they saw three houses ago is um, potentially a Ukrainian nationalist. Like they will go back and they'll arrest him. Or um, if they find out um, that somebody had, uh, you know, just signed up for the territorial defenses, um, then they will go back and they will arrest them. Um, They will go to orphanages and ask where the children are so that they can take them away from uh, the town. Um, There are so in 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 international law, there are certain like protections um, that uh, are there certain measures that you're supposed to take when you're trying to protect the civilian population. So, for example, um, if you want to transfer uh, populations in an occupied area, you're supposed to transfer them to a third party country, not to your country. Um, if you're occupying, so, uh, uh, if you're occupying new territory, um, uh, now there are certain, like you, you can get around that. Like if there's a medical emergency, um, and you know, the nearest hospital is in Russian territory, then technically speaking, Russia would be in, um, like Russia would be allowed to like, take a Ukrainian child to a Russian hospital to get that Ukrainian child like uh, emergency medical care. Um, And so they will use that excuse, for example, as well. Um, Another really big thing that you hear a lot of is um, so they they've they've entered your town. They've done all the sweeps. They've you know filtered out who they think they need to filter out. They've got the list of people to monitor. Um, So they will um, now they'll start badgering the the local media in that area. Um, a lot of the time, the local media has already fled because they know that they're going to potentially be targeted um, or they will um, they will take over the editorial stabs of these um, publications um, and they'll just start publishing from that uh, media organization's name and claim that now they're suddenly pro-Russian. Um, and then you'll also hear cases of um, they will start pressuring parents and say, hey, um, you know, this is a really stressful time right now, especially for your kids. You know that we have a free camp program where you can send your kids to vacation in uh, Crimea or in South Russia or somewhere, and they'll be totally safe. 
And once we've stabilized the situation on the front lines, once we've pushed the front lines more um, into uh, uh, the other direction, uh, you know, your kids will come back and they'll be refreshed and they'll be happy. Um, and then those kids uh, get sent off. The parents don't have any way to contact the camps that the kids were sent to. Um, sometimes the parents will eventually get the camp person's phone number. Um, and then you will hear horror stories. Uh, for example, after uh, Ukraine liberated the Kharkiv Oblast, um, parents who had sent their kids to camps um, from the Kharkiv Oblast um, were basically told, we're not going to give you your kids back because you're under Ukrainian control now. And we don't trust that. And they will tell the kids themselves. They'll tell the kids like you're not going home until we take back your hometown. Um, and it's just this, it's this like uh, never ending hell. Um, and this is like, this is from reading reports, but I've also, I, I, I've, 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 um, I've spoken to people who have, you know, lived in these, uh, uh, in these conditions who have relatives who live in the conditions. And it's, it's, it's way easier for me. Um, I recognize to just kind of like outline these things and kind of like highlight the things that, um, I think are the most, um, the, the most like, uh, uh, important to like highlight in a, in a, in a, in a, in a short conversation. Um, but you know, it really is like just 24 seven hell. And it's just like constant stress. Um, you have loved ones who are on, um, you know, Ukrainian government controlled territory, and you don't know how long you're going to be able to, to, to be in contact with them. You don't know how you're going to actually have a, um, uh, you know, you don't, you don't know if you're ever going to see them again. You don't know if you can actually cross back into Ukraine again. Um, there's actually a really, really amazing film um, that I highly recommend um, that is currently it just was uh, had its theatrical release in the U.S. Um, and then um, in the future, I believe that um, it will be more widely distributed because it's it's uh, the distribution is is run by PBS. So I, 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 I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's going to be very widely distributed. It's a movie called 20 Days in Mariupol that follows the first 20 days of the uh, full scale invasion um, through the eyes of uh, a couple of AP journalists. And basically, they documented the first 20 days of the, um, you know, of, of the invasion from Mariupol. And that film um I will say is such it's such a brilliant um it's it's so so well documented um the director understood what was happening and that he was living in a historical moment and so he started documenting literally everything that was around him and I will tell you watching that film after having worked on the two um genocide reports like it it lines up one to one with how it kind of like with how it it how it reads and how these conversations make me feel like seeing the images on the screen, like a hundred percent line up to what, what I, I kind of, you know, envision this feels like. Um, and the other testimony that I, I've heard from, from, from other people who have lived under these conditions. So this is from the top. I just want to make clear, like the culpability yeah. here, because yeah. we've really talked, um, you know, about, you know, spokespeople, other people are on TV and, you know, um, I just and you also already said that, well, what about that 20 percent of, you know, Ukrainians who can't be uh, converted back to back to Russians? Yeah. Um, was this genocide planned ahead of time? Uh, I guess that's that's my question. So that is that is um, I'm glad you asked that question, because that question is the kind of question that genocide scholars and international human rights lawyers are having amongst themselves right now. Um, that is kind of the big question. That is the question that is kind of like, um, uh, that is kind of like one of the forbidden topics at dinner uh, because it turns into a very long uh, debate because um, there's, you know, there's arguments on both sides, um, right? The argument on the, you know, genocide was pre-planned side says that, well, you know, we know what Russia's plan was when they occupied areas because we've seen what happened when they occupied areas. Um, and so, you know, like they knew this going in. Um, but then there's also the other argument that says, uh, it says basically, um, they didn't plan to, carry out genocide because they didn't think they were going to need to carry out genocide. Um, and 
they basically created the conditions where genocide would necessarily have to happen if there was the kind of resistance that they experienced. And that, to me personally, feels like a slightly more plausible explanation, although both of them to me are like, I I feel like the distinction between the two, um, it has implications um, in like legal theory, as far as I understand, but I don't know all of the nuance of those implications because I don't have a law background. Um, but to me, it feels like um, it feels like Russia genuinely bought into these propaganda narratives that they are living by and that they really thought that they would just come in. Uh, they'd overwhelmingly, um, you know, there'd be overwhelming support for the Russian army. And then you would just magically have Russian Ukraine again. Um, and there wouldn't, be, you wouldn't need to do anything with the people. But the problem is that they create, they necessarily created the conditions under which genocide would have to happen if there's any amount of resistance whatsoever among the civilian population, right? When you're telling your soul, so an important, an important aspect of last year's report, um, that was like a huge, huge, huge red flag was a, a um a journalist at the New York Times noticed that uh the Russian army has to uh consume one hour per day of Russian state media. Um and um uh, when you look at what the actual what the actual um Russian like the, the military schedule says, it says like in Russian, it says like informational programming, right? Which means state state propaganda, like state state uh, run news. So Kremlin propaganda. Um, so Russian soldiers every day are watching one hour of, uh, propaganda that was dominated and still is dominated by, um, what are effectively these genocidal narratives about Ukrainians, right? Like they're, you, when, when, when Russian soldiers are hearing, um, that Russian, that, 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 uh, Ukrainians who, uh, are obsessed with speaking Ukrainian and who refuse to speak Russian are Nazis. That Ukrainians who, um, uh, that, that actually there's a lot more Nazis than we initially thought. Um, and that, uh, you know, Ukrainian identity is effectively interchangeable with being a nationalist and being a nationalist is effectively interchangeable with being a Nazi. And then you send that person to Bucha and you tell them to occupy Bucha. And then it turns out that the people in Bucha don't want to be occupied by the Russian army. Um, and then you're, t then, and then you're given the, the orders that, um, you should shoot the civilian population, um, if it's necessary, right? Like you're creating the conditions. You're necessarily creating those conditions. Whether or not those conditions are being created, um, like, uh, 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 like, from before the war started because they predicted that this would happen. Um, I don't, I don't know is, I don't, I don't know whether that's like ultimately, um, the ultimate, like the ultimate relative, uh, uh, relevant, um, 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 thing to highlight, but rather the fact that you, you created these conditions and that the, that these conditions created a foreseeable result. Like it is, it's, it's obvious what's going to happen when you send men with guns into a town and tell them to, that their job is to denazify the town and that they can shoot civilians. <laughs> like it's, 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 you know what you're doing in that, in that circumstance. So I think that like, I think that ultimately, um, I don't, I don't have an answer. I think that, I think that probably, um, they didn't think that they were going to need to carry out genocide, but I also don't think that they saw genocide as a, um, as a problem. Like that, that, that if it came to eliminating the Ukrainian national identity, um, nobody at the top has a problem with like physically liquidating ethnic Ukrainians, like, or national, like, uh, you, you, members of the Ukrainian national group, right? Like they, they, nobody at the top has a problem with that. They're completely fine with it. You, you see, um, you know, you see rhetoric like that, right. You know, in the report on Russian national news, uh, but you also see it like in, uh, in Eurasianist political ideology, right? Like the things that Dugan writes and, uh, the things that people like him, uh, support, right? Like even like, um, uh, right. Like there's the whole thing with, uh, Igor Gherkin Strelkov, who was arrested recently. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a, a big uproar online that he was portrayed as just like an opposition figure when actually his problem with the way that 
Putin is carrying out the war is that he's not carrying out the war brutally enough. Um, whereas, whereas someone like Yevgeny Prigozhin is upset that he can't just destroy everything in sight, regardless of whether or not it's good or bad or something that should be destroyed or not be destroyed. Prigozhin thinks we should be using more violence to care, like to, to win all of these battles. He doesn't, he's not. Prigozhin does not seem like he is super ideologically interested in the destruction of the uh, Ukrainian national group. Whereas Igor Dyrkin, like, that's his whole thing. Like, that's his whole thing is, like, restoring this, like, Russian imperial um, uh, order. And, like, he does, like, his his issue with the way that Putin is carrying out the war is that it's not effective enough in destroying the Ukrainian national identity. So, like, um, there's certainly an appetite for the destruction of uh, the Ukrainian national group, um, and that appetite has always existed. Um, so whether or not they went into the war um, intending to carry out a genocide of Ukrainians, um, I think ultimately isn't the the final barometer, but rather that they were always okay with this outcome and that they created the conditions where this outcome wouldn't be necessary. Like it would necessarily be the case if they encountered any kind of resistance and they encountered even more resistance probably than they expected. I don't want to get lost uh, in a Strelkov related tangent. um, But I do want to note that I thought it was uh, fucked up when he was arrested, that all of the headlines said Putin critic uh, and not convicted war criminal. Uh, or any of the other things that can be attributed to him. Uh, um, let me let me let me also say that um, that uh, yes, this this uh, his, his, also his arrest and the whole situation with um, with uh, uh, Prigozhin kind of pointed out um, that one of the one of, also kind of a side note, but um, one of the one of the uh, I think one of the things that uh western intellectuals fall into the trap of is um they get very caught up in the idea of a dissident Mm -hmm. um somebody who also rejects putin um and this is also something that the russian opposition gets very caught up in so you saw um navalny publicly voicing support for strokov girkin um you also heard people in Navalny's camp say, like, um, we need uh, to support um, uh, Prigozhin because he is uh, he is like the best uh, resistance against Putin at the moment when the you know march on Moscow was happening. Um, and, you know, you 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 realize that, you know, being um, especially when you're kind of this deep in, in uh, understanding things that, uh, you know, resisting putin himself um creates a lot of very odd bedfellows and um we really have to be very careful not to get caught up in who is a dissident um and who is uh you know like just like being like well he technically is a dissident because he was criticizing putin and then putin arrested him well yeah but why was he criticizing putin i just want to make sort of uh a statement basically (laughs) you know i think that we have this really stupid idea in the general, you know, uh, Western Western civilization that we were beyond this, that, you know, white Europeans are beyond this. And in, you know, the United States, I think, tries to throw itself into the same bag. You know, you know, we're, we're certainly beyond this. And it just shows, man, that, I mean, human nature and, I mean, uh, the, the demons of the past have not been exercised, right? I mean, we are still living with the fact that we are human. And humanity has this possible turn of just sucking. I mean, I think that, I think that it's like, I think that, yeah, no, I think that it, it goes really, really deep. And I think that... Uh, Part of the problem with uh, part of the part of the problem that I see is that we also want we always want very very simple answers to very 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 complex problems, and what we're seeing in Russia um, and the way that Russia is carrying out this war is uh, it's top down, no doubt about that. It is it is this is Putin's vision for uh, creating his own legacy and for um, you know restoring uh, whatever revanchist ideas he has um, for the Russian empire. Uh, but at the same time, 
This is only possible because there are um, certain narratives that exist culturally in Russia that have existed for a very long time that have never been confronted within Russian society. And these narratives um, are obviously very terrifying. But, you know, the narrative, the way the, the way that Ukrainians are dehumanized in Russian uh, culture um, is not a unique uh, uh, phenomenon in the world. Um, a lot of groups of people um, who are either protected by the genocide convention or even groups of people who are not protected by the genocide convention um, suffer uh, uh, from a similar dehumanization. Um, at the current moment, there aren't as many governments who are willing to carry out the kind of uh, destructive violence that Putin, one, has the uh, capacity to carry out, but then two, has like the desire to actually fully go through with it. But I don't think that that's, you know, that's not going to be always the case historically. It's not going to be the case that, you know, in Europe, there's just this one case where uh, one dictator has, uh, you know, made it his vision to, uh, you know, to, to leverage this twisted idea of Ukrainians in order to carry out this kind of a genocidal war. Um, that's, it, it, yeah, there, there are... There are other groups who are also vulnerable, and all it takes is somebody with the power to weaponize uh, similar narratives about other peoples, and we could be facing the same thing, um, you know, in other contexts. And you know, to a degree, you know, in other contexts, things are happening around the world that 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 we should also be very concerned about and, and recognize um, as similar kinds of violence. But but yeah, no, no, this is this is not. Um, we are not past this. I, 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 I agree. What should the response from the international community be then? Um, I think I, I appreciated um, uh, last year there was a, uh, there was uh, a hearing held by the Helsinki commission um, in Congress on the topic of uh, genocide in Ukraine. Um, and I really, really, really liked Timothy Snyder's answer to this question. Um, basically, Tim Snyder said, we are in a very unique position in terms of a genocide. Um, there is, there has never been this kind of an opportunity where the victims of a genocide literally have a trustworthy state apparatus that can be supported. Um, the every country in the world has a duty to prevent genocide. Um, and so that means that uh, that's a sliding scale, by the way. So that means that, like, if you are very close to Russia, you have more of a responsibility to use your relations with Russia to leverage them into not committing genocide. But um, if we can provide Ukraine with the tools that it needs to prevent genocide on its own soil, then we have not only a moral duty, but a legal duty to ensure that. Um, basically, the only thing that the international courts um, prohibit in terms of responding to genocide is um, you can't. You can't unilaterally um, enter a conflict to prevent uh, a genocide. Um, um, so, like. Russia is invading Ukraine, um, also under the pretext of preventing genocide, right? Like one of the things in the lead up to the full scale invasion was, uh, Ukraine is committing genocide against Russians in Donbass. So we have to go there to save the Russians. Um, so the courts generally seem to frown on using military intervention to prevent genocide, but nothing, nothing stops, uh, international, nothing stops the international community from making sure that Ukraine has everything that it needs to prevent genocide. So um, that means from where I'm standing, that means providing Ukraine with um, every weapon that it needs. It means providing Ukraine with more um, artillery. It means providing Ukraine with more training, um, with air defense. Um, it means, it means using more sanctions against Russia. Um, it means, um, you know, considering even more, Measures against Russia, uh, we still haven't. The State Department is terrified of designating Russia a state sponsor of terrorism um, because they've never attempted to uh, suspend another country's sovereign immunity um, that was that large. And so they're very, very, very terrified of, of that step. But if Russia is designated a state sponsor of terrorism, then also Russia um, 
like is a place where companies can't do business, which means that all of the huge corporations that have calculated that it's actually financially more viable to continue supporting a genocidal war uh, by continuing to uh, do business in that country, um, those those companies will no longer be able to make the determination that it's economically viable because now you will be in violation of uh, U.S. sanctions. So so I think that that um, increasing measures like that, I think that we cannot forget that when we're talking about genocide, we're talking about like, uh, you know, we're, people view it as the crime of crimes. Right. And so um, there should not be a measure that is too far when we're talking about the kinds of crimes that Russia is committing. Um, it should be basically isolating Russia from the international community and rallying around Ukraine to ensure that Ukraine has everything that it needs to win the war. Christopher Atwood, thank you so much for coming on to Angry Planet and walking us through this. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. That's all for this week, Angry Planet listeners. As always, Angry Planet is me, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin Nodell. It's created by myself and Jason Fields. Uh, if you like us, if you really like us, please go to angryplanetpod.com or angryplanet.substack.com. Kick us $9 a month. It helps us produce the show. It keeps us going. Uh, you get early versions of the mainline episodes that are commercial-free. You also get bonus episodes, some other stuff that I'm uh, working on that's coming down the pipe. Um tell share more about that with you when it's a little bit closer to being ready kevin's on a reporting trip right now i think we're going to have him on the show when he gets back from that i don't want to spoil what it's about uh but he's witnessing a pretty important news story uh, excited to have him on um next week we're gonna have somebody come on talk to us about what's going on in uh africa it's a pretty important story we're generally going to drill down on why we should be paying more attention to that continent um especially in the west kind of what it means and what's happening So, we will be back next week with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet. Stay safe until then. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.